Welcome to the second season of Science Actually, a podcast by Imperial College London students and staff. We are delighted to have you back for a new exciting topic, the science of the future. Tag along as we ask Imperial's experts to give us a glimpse of what's ahead of us. Welcome to this episode of Science Actually podcast. My name is Ovidio and I'm a research fellow in intelligent data curation. For season two of this podcast, we are recording a two episode series on biases in artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is often abbreviated as AI, so I will use the two terms interchangeably to the episode. In the previous episode, we looked at biases in AI and their impact on society from legal or medical point of view. In this episode, we will explore some potential solutions to biases in AI with two guests. Ultimately, this episode will explore how Imperial experts are approaching one of the biggest challenges in artificial intelligence and answer the question, can we remove biases from machine learning model or this is something we'd have to live with? In the first part of the episode, Dr. Kennedy will talk about the business perspective of biases in AI and the impact of all this in, on daily activities. In the second half of the episode, Professor Tony will introduce the topic of explainable AI and will tell us more about the human in the loop techniques she is developing with her group. Our first guest, Dr. Kennedy, is an associate professor in business school and co-director of the Data Science Institute. Dr. Kennedy was educated at Northwestern University and Stanford. Before coming to Imperium, Dr. Kennedy was at the University of Southern California Marshall School of Business. Dr. Kennedy. Thank you for joining us today. We are very excited to talk to you about the future of AI, biases, and the impact of biases on business. In our listener community, the consensus is that um, businesses should do whatever possible to remove the biases from the product they are developing. Is that even possible or do we have to live with these biases? Well, I don't think you're going to find many people who would say that businesses should just be lazy or ignore these problems. On the other hand, you know, the idea that business is the party that we could turn to to say, can you please clean this all up, I think is probably unrealistic. So I suppose I have kind of a nuanced two-part message here, which is businesses need to work very hard on this stuff. But, you know, the second part of the message is that businesses alone are not capable of eliminating biases from the systems that they build. The reason I say that business alone isn't enough. Not saying business doesn't have to work hard, but if there isn't some sort of social consensus that's developed either organically by social movements or put into to, uh, codified into law, then the, the business becomes an actor in here where you're just not sure what the rules are. And uh, definitely there are times where business should go ahead and take a position and lead and lean into these fights. But I do not think that business alone is the arbiter of these fights. I think that, in fact, there are you know, many parties to them and that businesses should approach this process not thinking they control it by themselves. This is another concern coming from the listener community. And it's about a famous example where a chatbot is exposed to hate speech from social media and starts to consider this kind of behavior acceptable. How could businesses prevent similar mistakes from happening? 
when you're aware that there's a certain kind of speech that would be widely considered hate speech, and somehow it enters into the training data that you're planning on using, you know, you do your EDA and the pre-pass before you build the model and you figure out what's the distribution of different kinds of speech that are there. And if you find that there is is a kind of speech that's objectionable and, and needs to be censured uh, because you don't want, let's say it's a customer service representative that the chatbot is going to do, and you don't want that being your brand as a business. You know, unlike what I was saying in in the first question, that is a case where I think business absolutely has to take a point of view on that and, you know, is is accountable to customers for, you know, the results. So even in the case where there's going to be some sort of public debate about what is hate speech, every business will need to take a point of view on where they're going to stand on that. And this has certainly happened in the past year, Disney, for example, has has taken some stick from the state of Florida for taking positions that are hotly debated in culture wars there over what are the rights and wrongs of, you know, how to conduct what they do. And I give them some credit for taking a point of view there. Many people would say they haven't, they haven't gone far enough, but they certainly have gone far enough to have been penalized for it in the political environment. So this is this is why I said earlier, so philosophically, can businesses remove all bias? Absolutely not. Because what we even call a bias isn't something that we leave to business to work out. Business is an important party in all of that. But there are many parties in that. And that's kind of why I gave that answer. And I hope that doesn't sound too obtuse. I know there will be some people who are saying, oh, you know, Mark, he works in a business school. So he's just giving businesses a pass. And trust me, I, I'm, I'm, I'm stridently activist enough on this stuff, but also there's a philosopher in me that says, okay, but let's really dig into what's going on here. And it's not a matter of any one party to this whole process, except ultimately for those that make the laws can control what we will call that second kind of bias and what is right and what is wrong. And if we stand on the same track of thought, how do we make sure that businesses do not abuse biases even if this is part of their modeling strategy. Again, there, I'm going to sound like such a nerd here, but abusing a, a bias, we have to be pretty clear about what we think that is. I personally would say that there's quite a bit of abusing of biases in the digital economy these days. A lot of the online content that we consume is curated and selected for us by algorithms that generally are designed to optimize for engagement. And so one of the reasons why we've seen such a flowering of kind of alternative facts and conspiracy theories and things that are very questionable, clickbaity type content that really end up in, you know, a lot of people's feet. I see some of this stuff, you know, and it's not that I click a lot on it, but it's that the algorithm says, okay, this is the kind of stuff that people really seem to to jump on. Why is that? It's because any any sort of flavor of this sort of stuff ends up being something that tells people what they want to hear or gives people a feeling that keeps them coming back. And a couple of the feelings that do that quite strongly are anger and fear. And the, the reason for that is that you get a dopamine hit from that. And so it can be properly addictive. I asked this question of Anna Lemke at Stanford in the, you know, she said, yeah, absolutely. That is, that is something that, that will be addictive for people. So there is abuse already in the system. Why? Because, you know, the business is there to kind of build a system that works for customers following some simple principles. Do I think that people, when they built these 
algorithms and systems said, I know what, wouldn't it be great if we could figure out how to create a bunch of hapless addicts to crap content that would promulgate a series of kind of competing narratives about the way that society would would look or should look that would end up kind of tearing at the fabric of society and undermining the prospects of democracy. No, I, I don't think that's what people set out to do, but it is what happened or is happening, you know, and at least this is what people are debating. You may say, Mark, you're, you're over-dramatizing, but it's, there's certainly a lot of people that are very concerned about this. So how do we stop that abuse? I think, you know, there's what the individual can do. It, it's kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm prescribing a little bit as, you know, like, how could you be healthy? Individuals can be responsible for, um, you know, a healthy degree of change that that does accumulate and aggregate to make a difference. I think leaving it to individuals alone, though, is probably not enough. Uh, I would suggest also that there's a role for activists and people who think about uh, policy, whether in government or as social movement organizers, that it's worth saying, hey, we should we should bring some awareness raising to to these issues and suggest, you know, the kinds of things that we ought to be considering in terms of policy. And then in government, uh, people who are elected officials or who are in uh, professional positions uh, looking over policy, I think, should be having a look at this. And the more that we debate it uh, and think about it, the the more likely we will be to to limit the abuses that are there. So I think it would be a mistake to say, you know, I have found the bogeyman for all of this, and it is tech company XYZ. Um, I also think it would be a mistake to say, oh, poor tech, lay off, give them a break. You know, I think we have to apply pressure on this stuff. But again, I kind of guess it back to my first point, which is that it's about having a societal consensus on these things change from one party alone is really hard. So I think we kind of have to engage that process whereby we set social norms that will prevent abuse. And by the way, I would suggest that, you know, stiff penalties for abuse might not be a bad thing. Okay. Um, to finish off the conversation, I'm very curious about your current research. Can you please share any details and things that you're currently working on with your colleagues? I guess I'm doing a few different things, which I'll top line and then focus on one that's really relevant to the conversation today. I've been interested forever in social ontologies and how people decide what is real. I'm basically, a, in a way, an applied philosopher doing work that's at the intersection of organization theory, cultural sociology, and computer science, where I'm thinking, well, how do these things get created? I'm sort of using methods adapted from, from AI and computer science, but on questions that cultural sociologists would ask, that organizations theorists would ask about, you know, how do people decide what's legitimate, what they're going to, you know, hold up as, as a social norm, as a standard. And when they see something that's new to the world and claimed as a new thing, they're going to say, is this anything? And generally conclude no, because the smart people would have already known about it if it were a thing. And so new things enter our ontologies all the time which is part of the reason why I have a, a stream of research where we're looking at work that kind of analyzes the job descriptions of uh, large companies and say, okay, this is the work that we find in here so that we can relate that um, to the sorts of things that technologies can do. And then the final thing that I'm really interested in these days is this whole thing about what makes a trustworthy AI system in the first place. 
which brings kind of brings me back to some of the fundamentals about how do people decide when something is real. You know, even if people were to say, okay, I guess AI is real and it's happening, they might really oppose it if they don't feel like they can trust it. And that might also incline them to some pretty uh, skeptical and negative evaluations of AI. So trustworthiness of AI is a big deal. And for that, I've been really pleased to work with an organization called Validate AI, uh, which my colleague Yike Guo had uh, put me onto and said, you know, you should talk to um, specifically the thing that Validate AI are really leading on is the idea of not how do you verify that a system is doing what you think it's supposed to do, but how do you validate whether that's a reasonable thing to do or a right thing to do? And that's a that's a thorny question. It gets into all the philosophy stuff that we were talking about earlier. But at a very high level, what I can say is that we've been kind of developing a point of view about the high-level principles that you would want an AI system that's going to go into production to pass on. And this is kind of a template for a certification process. And I can remember this, I'm using an acronym, which is short. The first part of that is the S, which is for safety. And we think about, you know, when you're going to automate something that people were previously doing, it would be great not to automate any harm. And one of the ways that you can avoid automating harm is to analyze the harm that you might be doing once you put it into place. Um, and specifically, when you do that across subpopulations, you can at least be sure that you're not harming some vulnerable population. The H in short is for honest, and that is be honest about the sources of data and the data that you use. Be open about what goes into it and declare all of that. R is for responsible, take legal and financial responsibility for anything that goes awry with this system. That almost certainly involves insurance at some point and T have a third party look over your shoulder and keep you honest so that um, it's not just you saying you've done it all right. You know, somewhere in in between ontologies, thinking about kind of how organizations are changed all this and coming up with methods for analyzing all that and thinking about trust and hopefully building some practical systems and standards that people can use to make not just a faster world you know, where we do greater bad more cheaply, but a better world where we really look at things in in detail and with care and with third parties looking over our shoulders before we put production systems in place. Hopefully some good comes of all that. Very, very interesting conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Kennedy, for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. The second guest is Professor Francesca Toni, Professor in Computational Logic and J.P. Morgan Research Chair in Augmentation-Based Interactive Explainable AI in the Department of Computing at Imperial College London. She's also a member of AI at Imperial Network of Excellence and leader of Computational Logic and Augmentation Research Group. Most recently, she became the founding leader of Center for Explainable AI. Professor Tony, thank you for joining us today. We are very excited to talk to you about the future of AI. Can you please introduce the topic of computational biases in AI? and why this is important. Yes, actually, the fact that uh, AI is biased uh, is one of the main uh, push towards uh, the need for explainability and explainable AI. So a lot of AI nowadays is based upon data. It uh, it develops uh, from crunching data. And of course, data is collected by humans, and it's about human behavior and incorporates any biases that humans uh, may, you know, may have. Thus, the resulting AI is 
by definition, somewhat biased. In order to make sure that we can, uh, we can trust AI, we need to understand what it does. So explainability is all about leveraging on uh, abstractions of models that allow to understand what the models are doing and why they are computing some outputs, thus unearthing any biases in the data. And some of the interesting work in explainability is trying to then leverage upon the explanations to somewhat mitigate the biases in the model by using the information in explanations for debugging. But assuming that this is not a matter of cost, can we even eliminate the biases in our data? I think that would be very difficult and it would be hard to prove that uh, the data that we use to build models are completely bias-free. Biases have a subtle way to get through, a bit like water in crack, but also the biasing data would require a, a massive uh, exercise uh, whereby we try to prompt humans involved in the data collections to go beside and beyond the data. There are lots of techniques that people use for curating data so that uh, they are less biased, but in my mind, it will never fully eliminate bias. So even assuming that bias is the only problem you want to sort out by means of explainability, which it is not, but even assuming that the fixing the data to eliminate the bias will not eliminate the need for explainability in my mind. I agree with that statement. In other research projects, other groups are attempting to build simpler, easy to understand model. Is that a realistic option or you would do things differently? I think that uh, interpretability of models is a first step towards explainability and therefore building models that are smaller, that are more transparent is a good way to start approaching the problem. But in reality, interpretability and explainability are not the same thing. In the history of AI, explainability has been a concern even when AI was not developed from data, or even when AI is not developed from data. So expert systems that were very popular in the 70s and 80s, and that fully transparent, uh, rule-based, etc., still, when deployed, required explanations. So explainability is, uh, to me, an add-on that does require a way to interpret what the model is doing, but the interpretability alone is not explainability. Can you please explain what your research group is doing differently and why this approach is different from anything else? Yes, within my group, we are trying to take uh, some kind of foundational view to explainable AI and explainability. And rather than focusing on uh, engineering solutions alone or on uh, developing solutions that make mathematical sense, we try to bridge the gap between the humans that are at the receiving end of the explanations and the machines. So as to uh, try and develop faithful abstractions to models that lend themselves well to support the generation of explanations that humans can interact with in a way that is in line with what the social sciences tell us about explanations in a human sense. So what we are doing in order to support this more principled way and this bridging the gap between machine and human is uh, using methodologies and ideas from computational argumentation, uh, which is a well-established type of AI at the intersection of symbolic AI and machine learning. And we are trying to leverage on what we have learned on using computational argumentation as a standalone tool when using it in combination with machine learning techniques, for example, or with data-centric AI. 
So what we are trying to do is use uh, computational argumentation abstractions to unearth any doubts that the machine a model may embed concerning all of these, all the data crunching models are, have a built-in uncertainty in some cases are probabilistic and uh, they are massaging away the uncertainty somehow, but there is underpinning uncertainty. And when we explain those models, we try to dig out this uncertainty, giving a kind of a way uh, to humans to inquiry about the uncertainty and uh, potentially inject knowledge and uh, pave the way towards debug. So the basic idea is abstractions that lend themselves to interactions with humans. Ultimately, I feel that the solution comes back to humans and integrating humans into the approach, allowing them to provide feedback about the biases and how they feel about it. In one of your more recent research papers, you add humans in the training loop, allowing them to debug the biases of the machine learning models. Can you give us more details about this? Yes, that's defined work by one of my students, Yawato. That work is based upon the idea that you can try and abstract away from, in that case, a deep learning architecture that is being used for language classification. So you've got a system that takes an input piece of text and tells you whether it's about business or military or whichever other topic. So that's one task that we are focusing on. And what we have first done is build an interpretable layer over these models, whereby we can show the, some of the hidden neurons in those architectures, which correspond to the convolutional filters. We can show them to humans. And the way we make them interpretable is we turn them into world clouds by passing training data through them and seeing which training data activates the most those filters, then building world clouds from those training data. So we then first have an interpretable counterpart of those complex models, and they're approximations, but they're useful for showing the humans what those models are doing. Humans can just say that filter, which supports a certain class, is wrong. It shouldn't really be. It embeds biases, or it builds upon artifacts, so it shouldn't be used by the model. We then develop a post-processing, a fine-tuning step of the model that without requiring retraining takes into account the opinions of users when a majority of users agrees that a certain filter is to be dismissed. And by doing that, we have a human in the loop, if you like, debugging system empowered by global explanations of the models. And we show that uh, this process whereby the human feeds back into the system and the system improves using the feedback and gives rise to models that are more robust and less biased. So that's somewhat a proof of concept of uh, the kind of methodology that we could, uh, you know, we could aspire to more broadly within AI. So ultimately, in the future, someone could use this technique to allow non-expert users to debug their own data and their own models and understand how their own private data is used in machine learning. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. So we have designed this human in the loop debugging so that it's really targeting non-specialists. Indeed, we have uh, gathered uh, human feedback through a crowdsourcing platform. So the idea is uh, to empower the humans to improve models uh, as they use these models or prior to using these models. 
and until they're confident that these models are sufficiently robust and uh, trustworthy that uh, they can be safely used. And of course, they can be used by experts as well, but uh, do not require the standard expertise that um, debugging typically needs these days. That's a fascinating topic and a fascinating paper. Thank you very much, Professor Tony, for joining us on the podcast and for this interview. It's been a very interesting discussion. Thank you for having me. It has been a pleasure. Thank you.